Today's episode of the City of Smack podcast on the City of Smack podcast network is presented by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides 24-7 personalized insights around your sleep, recovery, and daily activity. Whoop has helped runners of all backgrounds train smarter and recover faster so they can get to the starting line healthy and hit some new PRs. Now listen, I didn't get the PR that I wanted or even come close at the Trials of Miles New York City qualifier, and I got my butt handed to me by a 57-year-old. But I've got all the data now so I can go back to the drawing board and figure out what went wrong. In fact, I saw that I was only 32% recovered going into that race, so I demand a rematch. Whoop doesn't get your splits or mileage, but instead focuses on the other 23 hours of the day when your body is getting ready for that next run. Every day, it gives you a personalized recovery score based on things like your resting heart rate, sleep, and respiratory rate, so you know if you're going to crush that workout and if the legs are feeling good. I've seen Nikki Hiltz, Joe Kovacs, Drew Hunter, and a slew of other professional athletes wearing it. Now it's your turn. Join now for free. Whoop is offering 15% off with code Sidious at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter Sidious at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster and run faster get to that next starting line healthy with whoop looks like we've got some new backers on patreon ahead of this week's episode so thanks to sif mars 98 dan nolte and david greenberg for dishing out a couple bucks to support the Sidious mag podcast here's how you can think of it it's like getting me a cup of coffee for bringing you the show weekly or keeping you company maybe while it's your uh run your commute or while you're working so Thanks to the supporters on Patreon, we're going to the Olympic trials, and we're going to have lots of fun plans for those two weeks, so support us over at patreon.com slash Mag. Another way you can show your support is by picking up a sweater, a crew neck, a t-shirt, whatever, at SidiousMag.com and hitting the merch tab. My guest for today's episode is Ben Flanagan. This is his second appearance on the show. He first came on back in 2018 after winning the NCAA title in the 10,000 meters. Now he's a professional runner for the Reebok Boston Track Club, and he's currently quarantined in Canada before he competes at their respective Olympic trials. That's taking place in Montreal later this month. So we're all fairly familiar with what it takes to make the U.S. Olympic team, where you just got to finish in the top three at the U.S. trials. But it's a little bit more complex with Canada at the moment, and he explains why. His personal best in the 5,000 meters is 13.20, which was run at the Platinum PT qualifier that was put on by Tracksmith. I was behind the mic for that race, and at first I thought it was a great win, and he notched a four-second personal best. But as you'll hear in this episode, he explains why that was much, much bigger for his hopes of competing in Tokyo. We also catch up on life since his last podcast appearance. He's got some nice things to say about Mason Furlick and much more. So without further ado, welcome back, Ben Flanagan. All right, now we welcome back Ben Flanagan to the podcast. Last time he was on was back in 2018, right after he won that NCAA title in the 10K. So we've got quite a bit of catching up to do. But first off, life in quarantine right now. You headed right back over the border. You're in Canada right now. Where where are you, and what's that been like? Yeah, uh, Chris, man, I'm uh, I'm stoked to be uh, to be back on here, man. Uh, you know, being at some of the same meets that you were announcing, I was really hoping that we'd get a chance to uh, catch you. I up know and- Austin, and then in Massachusetts, and then like we just didn't get a chance to to talk right afterwards. You know, one wave on the Austin <laughs> Trail, and that was it. I was yeah. just like, 
yeah, I've been kind of hightailing it out of uh, races. Haven't been staying, but otherwise, yeah. Uh, next time we'll catch you up for a beer. It'll be a good time. But good to be here. Uh, yeah, things are good. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm in Canada right now. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm planning on on running the uh, Canadian Olympic trials. So part of that is being back home. Uh, you know, just leading up to the games. So um, it's good. Uh, my my girlfriend's here. My dog's here. So. Uh, we're all hanging out in in uh, close uh, quarters, but uh, I'm able to work from here and everything, so uh, it's all good. Yeah, so let's catch up since the last time you came on. Ever since then, you turned pro. You signed a deal with Reebok. You've been training with the Reebok Boston Group down in Charlottesville. Uh, so how's that? How's that been going? And like, how how did that come to to be? Yeah, man. Oh, wow. This, yeah, this is uh, taking it's a It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. So um, I think the interesting thing about it is, you know, my story quite well, like NCAAs was quite a breakthrough performance. So uh, as far as my career was concerned, you know, there was really no offers on the table um, going into that race. Um, you know, I was kind of looking up like rock climbing memberships, which beer hockey league I was going to join, <laughs> things like that. Like I was kind of on my way out. Uh, until the last few weeks, things really started to click and, uh, you know, the race went great. And all of a sudden next, you know, a couple of days I met with Dan Lilo, uh, while I was in Eugene. Um, and we started kind of talking like, Hey, like, do you want to keep doing this? And, you know, it's always been a dream for me to run pro. So I was like, hell yeah, let's, let's find a situation. So from that point on, it was about kind of negotiating, um, pretty late in the game. Like, you know, a lot of these people like Justin, the Grant Fishers, the Sean McGordy's, um, you know, as far as I know, they were negotiating as well, but I think they kind of had their foot in the door because of all the previous success that they had. So for me, it was like really just trying to like hop, like strike while the iron was hot, like start talking to coaches right away. Um, and I actually wasn't necessarily planning on racing through the season. Um, thankfully, I decided that I wanted to. And uh, a couple of those big performances late in the uh, year definitely accelerated the process. So um the last thing I'll say is initially my goal was to try to find a situation to keep doing what I was doing. Things were really working. I was loving working with Sully. Um, I love Ann Arbor. Um, so I was trying to find a situation like an independent contract and uh, those just, they don't really exist much anymore. Or at least no one was willing to give one to me. <laughs> so the further I dived into things, uh, I kind of knew what was going to be about joining a group. Um, and the Reebok situation was pretty hush hush. So it wasn't until Justin made his Instagram post that I really knew about it. Um, and then I actually just like DM'd Colin Benny and Philo Germano, the guys who I like cross paths with me. And I was like, Hey, like if you guys are into this, um, you know, I'd love to get on the phone with Fox cause I'm super interested. And uh, that was kind of in the middle of the negotiations and it kind of came down to looking at Brooks uh, joining Hanson's and uh, Reebok and ultimately uh I decided Reebok was the best fit for me. I do. There are a couple more stories that are pretty funny about that, that I will go into detail, but that's already a pretty long answer. So if you want to follow up, I, I can tell those too. Was your win at Falmouth before or after you signed a contract? Cause that was like another big moment for you. Yeah. So that's really funny. You say that because the goal was to have pen to paper like days before that race. So I met with Dana G who, you know, um, mm -hmm member of the pod, you know, have yeah. your own podcast affiliated with Stidious. So uh, she was working with Reebok at the time and she was one of our main coordinators. And uh, she provided me with a, uh, 
a kit and shoes. And we just didn't quite get everything together. The offer wasn't made. Contract wasn't ready. So I wasn't able to sign, but they gave me a pair of Reebok shoes to run in. So I wore my, you know, typical Michigan throwback Adidas singlet, some Michigan shorts or whatever, and the Reebok shoes. And that was the most I represented Reebok on the day. Um, them not knowing that I was going to win the race. And then I remember hopping on the phone call with the coaches afterwards. And they're like, we all we wish, like, we just wish you were in a Reebok kit for that day. Right. Like we wish you had it. Like, let's get this done right away. And then between that moment and running the long Island mile that Kyle Merber puts on, uh, I was able to get things um, organized. I think that was like a really nice catalyst to just get stuff done. And I was able to break four for the first time in a, a Reebok kit, which was pretty cool. So what's Chris Fox's training being like, just based off of like what you maybe expected going into it? And then how does it compare to what you did at Michigan? Yeah, it's been a, amazing. Like the opportunity I got to talk to Fox, I remember just like him calling me and being like, like this might be a phone call that changes my life. Like I was like, this is Chris Fox, you know, Justin Knight, like world-class caliber coach. Like I was so excited to talk to him and learn about what he did and, you know, get involved. And uh, it's pretty, it was pretty shocking at first because he has a pretty simple model. Like there's nothing that that's, that's that complicated. And some things that are actually like, from what I was used to seemed oversimplified. Like we did a lot of, you know, all our workouts and trainers, we like never put on racing flats, uh, a lot of hills and mileage, like not really running that much faster than five minute pace for a lot of the year um, and getting on the track pretty late. And it, it took some adjusting because I was coming from a program with Sully uh, where I was getting a lot of success out of just like super high intensity, you know, big rest, like really sexy workouts, just like smashing these like huge intervals and then I came to Fox where it was like super short rest, higher volume, like pretty ugly splits that didn't feel good doing. And it took me a while to just wrap my head around like what was a good workout again? Because at first that transition, I was like, what happened? Like, did I lose everything? So I had to just kind of like redefine, like get my bearings down of like, okay, this is the expectation in this environment. Context is so much more important. Um, and it's such a, like a long-term focus. So, uh, you know, I'm sure people realize just following my career and my results, like it took me a while to adjust. Like I had one really good race, my first race with Fox, uh, well, I ran the Honolulu mile, which was pretty good. And then, well, I actually ran Canadian cross country, which was really bad. Mm -hmm. Then I ran the Honolulu mile, which was pretty good. And then I opened up in 748 for a big PR in the three K. And then from that point on, things got pretty tough for me. Um, then I experienced a really bad injury. Um, and then that whole next year was just like rebuilding and figuring things out again. And now year three, I finally have things figured out. So I like now really know like where to dedicate energy, like the workouts I, I get, I know how to like organize my effort accordingly. And, um, you know, now we've really, you know, got the momentum going in the right direction again. Refresh my mind. What was the injury? And then like that comeback process, it's always interesting how people just kind of, it, it could be a slow thing or you get right back onto it and you're Sean McGordian running 13 lows in the 5k by the next summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh Sean McGordy is a very inspirational career to follow, but also just like, like, so on, like, I was like, how the heck is like, he's such a stud. <laughs> it's amazing. Some of the stuff like the turnaround he can make. So uh, yeah, I didn't really talk much about the injury. This was the point of my career where like, you know, I'm still trying to figure myself as a pro, the stuff I want to disclose, the stuff I kind of want to keep to myself. And uh, 
So I actually went 2019, I ran a 10K at Peyton Jordan, it was fine. And then I went to Canada to run the Canadian 10,000 meter championships to try to book a spot to uh, world champs in Doha. Um, it was actually nuts. Like that week, I like, I had to go home for my sister's wedding. I was like just getting my P1 visa finalized. So I like wasn't certain I'd be able to get back over the board of the US. I was planning out like I qualified for Pan Ams. I was trying to fit in Falmouth. I wanted to go to Europe to get one more five to qualify for Worlds. It was a mess. So I get to the Cape, uh, Massachusetts. I stopped by Hannah's, my girlfriend's hometown to say hi to her family before going to Canada. And I went for a couple runs that were like super funky. Like I was like hitching my stride, like really slow. Like looking at my watch, like, wow, like 750s miles feel really bad. Um, and then I flew to Canada and things just never got better. Like, like my shakeouts got down to like eight to 10 minutes. And I just was like, man, this leg is killing me. Um, go and run a 10K on it. And that was like one of the most concerned I've ever been for. Like, I've never really had like, a bad situation, knock on wood, where I was like, oh, I can't race. And this was a time during warm-up where I was like, this is pretty concerning. Um, and sure enough, I got in the race and it was fine. Um, travel back to Charlottesville, things getting worse, and I get an X-ray MRI, and it turns out I've got a femoral um, stress reaction, stress fracture, you know, where you draw that threshold is kind of open to interpretation. Bone injury, my femur, miss out on the Falmouth Road Race. Like, I mean, that was just like, it, it was at the point where training was so hard and exhausting that like, it was a relief to know, like I could stop. I was like, okay, this is terrible. I'm missing on a world champs, you know, missing on a Pan Ams, which would have really helped for this Olympic cycle, ironically. But, um, and you're just stopped dead in your tracks. Like, okay, I have to address this. I can't run on a femoral stress injury. Um, so the, the biggest takeaway, you know, we're coming from a point in my career where I've had two bad injuries in my sacrum in my femur so pretty big bones in the body so any you know person that was comfortable bringing this up to me that was close uh you know my agent dan my family some docs were just like you know this is kind of an uncomfortable topic but like let's talk about eating like are you getting enough like these are big bones that shouldn't be um breaking or, or getting injured like are you getting nutrition so the, the focus at comeback wise was making sure like my nutrition was in a really good place. I was refueling properly. Uh, that came with about like a 10 to 12 pound weight gain post uh, injury. And you're then, not that tall of a guy. So it's like, it's yeah, that was like, <laughs> like 10, 10 to 12 pounds for a guy my size is like, that's like 10. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 10, 12% body weight. Like it was a lot. Like, and it was, it was, it was pretty noticeable, but at this point I was like, all right, this is what I need to do. I need to get myself together, make sure my body's healthy and then train again, uh, to get, we'll get fitness back to where it was. So I, I gained a lot of weight and then, uh, you know, just started training again and making sure that like nutrition was like a huge priority. Like, okay, you know, just make sure I'm getting everything I need. I can't afford another injury. And, uh, yeah, over time I just got better and better ran 1331 that winter, um, coming out of the injury. Um, and then kind of moved to the summer where things were getting better, ran 2806 during the pandemic. And then this year now, like just carrying the momentum and, uh, you know, minimizing setbacks, knock on wood again, not taking chances at this time. Um, you know, we've really just been able to string together a long training block. So yeah, another long answer, but, uh, that's kind of how that whole situation played out and, uh, you know, pretty vital, um, moment in my career where I learned a lot. Yeah. 
And you mentioned how like missing out on Pan Ams is something that like would have been a little bit valuable for this Olympic selection process this time around, because I guess for the people who follow the sport, it's not just always a clear cut way of getting to the Olympics. Like it could be based off qualifying times, placing at the trials. And now, you know, the world rankings were introduced. So that's like a whole nother component to it. So when we kind of like touch base after the, um, the meet in Massachusetts, I was curious as to like, how exactly does someone make the Canadian Olympic team for track? And it's not as clear cut as how the U S has right now with just top three at the trials go, uh, as long as they have like the standard. And so kind of how did we get to this point where you find yourself now across the border quarantining for two weeks and then getting ready for the Olympic trials where some of the athletes don't have to be there. Mo Ahmed, I think, just got like the uh, the pass to go for the 10K. And then there's, it's kind of, it's very arbitrary. I know with the marathon process, it was, they did have their trials. The person who won the Canadian trials got the auto berth. And then from there, the next two spots are going to be up to, you know, a selection. So I guess kind of explain it to the listeners. We've got a very heavy U.S. audience, but fans of yours as well, who kind of want to know, how is it that you might end up on the Olympic team? Or what's the process like? Dude, yeah. Uh, you're, you're talking to the right guy because this is like, it's been on my mind nonstop because uh, I want to be on the team. And uh, it's pretty funny the amount of messages I've gotten over the last few weeks as things have gotten close to the Olympics from like, hey, congratulations to, on making the team. And I'm like, not on the team, but thanks. <laughs> Other people like, hey, uh, you know, are the Olympics still happening? Hey, like, you know, are you coming, running the Olympic trials or, you know, sorry, you didn't make the team when I didn't run 27, 28, 10K. Like no one has any idea what's happening in my like support realm. So I've had this conversation so many times of like, okay, here's how it looks. So to give you the timeline, there was a point where it was not that complicated. Mm -hmm. And that was for all events, they were going to be the same as the marathon you described. Um, As long as an athlete, had the standard or was in the event quota, meaning they, you know, the 5k, for example, is taking 42 athletes and you're in a position where you're within the ranking of those top 42. Um, Canada can select you to the Olympics. You're qualified for the Olympics. So those are good. Those, that was the main focus. That's step number one. Cause if you're not, if you don't check that Olympic box, no matter how good you are in Canada, you're not making the team. Mm-hmm. Originally it was, if you win the trials, you get an auto bid. So the plan for me was, okay, get a ranking that puts me in the quota and then win the trials and I'll go. Um, the next step that was actually quite advantageous for me at the time was due to COVID, Athletics Canada announced no, no obligation to go to the trials anymore. You don't have to go. Um, but if you do, uh, there's still the auto bid. So if you win, uh, you, you still go, uh, but uh, you don't have to go anymore. So for a guy like me, that basically means, you know, the people who are a lock probably aren't going to come because you have to sacrifice a lot to come to the trials. So now I have to be in the event quota and win the trials likely without Mo and Justin there, which, you know, makes a pretty big difference. So, and then until recently, because, you know, the, I, from, I don't really know all the answers, but from what I gather, it was a lot to ask athletes to to go through this process, to go to the trials. They actually removed the auto bid. Um, And instead of going auto bid, 
two discretionary spots. It's now just three discretionary spots based on a number of variables. So that leaves things pretty open to interpretation. And as an athlete, you kind of just need to really know who you're competing against, where you stand relative to them, and what you can do to separate yourself from them. So again, in the 5K, because that's what I'm trying to make it in, Mo and Justin, it's kind of, you know, unspoken assumption that those guys are a lock just because of how, you know, much they've accomplished in their careers already. Uh, so we have a few people fighting for that third spot. And uh, the, the challenge now without the trials being mandatory and the auto bid not being there, we don't really know who's going to show up and what the value of winning that national title is. So as an athlete, you need to decide, okay, is it better to go run a really fast race in Portland or Europe or go to the trials and win that? Um, and due to all the protocol you have to go through to even make to the trials, it makes it almost impossible to do both. You've kind of got to choose one or the other and stick to it. So uh, that's the situation we're in right now. Um, where we're going is um, assuming the plan stays as what I'm planning right now and I go to the trials, the goal is to go to trials, compete really well, fight for the win. Um, if we run fast, that's a bonus. And, um, you know, really just impress the selection committee. And I think that combined with my 1320 earlier this year, um, some of my past experience and big wins and national titles I've collected, um, I'm hoping is enough to impress the selecting committee. But at the end of the day, um, it's up to them. And uh, the criteria is pretty broad. Yeah. So for the people who watch the race in Massachusetts, when I was on the call, 1320 for the win, outkicking Ben True, I was like, that's a just great performance, PR for you. But then that's kind of all I thought. It was off the Olympic qualifying mark. But beyond that, that four-second PR meant a lot because now I guess like out of the most recent performances in the last like three years, I mean, there's only like three guys ahead of you who have run faster. So it's like Justin, Mo. And Matt Hughes, who did it indoors, but now he's, he's most likely going to contest the steeplechase. So this puts you in a solid position. Yeah, 100%. So um, that race was a really big deal for me. And I went in knowing um, it was going to be one of my last really good shots to run fast um, before going to Canada when virtually, you know, there's two plus weeks of no racing because of the protocol I have to go through. So um Having been through there helped a lot. The race was set up well with pacers, uh, a pretty miserable day. So uh, I'm really happy that we were able to kind of overcome uh, the conditions and run pretty well. Uh, going into the race, what was on my mind most notably was trying to run faster than uh, Kieran Lum because he was the fastest Canadian behind Mo and Justin so far this year. Um, among the criteria for comparing these athletes is world ranking, head-to-head um, -head performances, Canadian ranking, fastest times. Um, so there's two things that I probably won't be able to pass Kieran on from now until the trials. And that is a world ranking. He's probably going to be above me no matter what, because he's just, he capitalized on really good opportunities and he's beaten me at Drake. So I was like, well, what I can do is run faster than him. So when I, I was staring at that clock with three laps to go, 1324 was on my mind. And uh, as we kind of were narrowing in on it, I was like, oh, dang, like, we've got a really good shot. And then with a lap to go, um, you know, usually I, I would probably wait a little bit longer than that to try to just uh, solidify like a winning position. But I was like, all right, it's about running as fast as possible. And, uh, you know, to close that well, and, uh, you know, 
increase that gap by four seconds. Um, that now asserts me as the next fastest Canadian. Uh, I know both Kieran and uh, Luke Brochet, who actually ran 13.22 that same night, um, are going to have more opportunities, and now they're targeting my time. So we'll see if it stands. Uh, but at that time, it was a pretty clutch performance that not only put me in the lead for fastest time, but also uh, solidified my uh, event ranking quota. So now I'm eligible for the Olympics. This is so intense. And for Canadians being the nicest competitors ever, like I feel like this is pitting you against some really guys who you're friendly, you know, (laughs) with year round. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Luke and Kieran, like, I think we all just kind of get it. You know, we all really like each other. We all respect each other a lot. And um, we all want to make the Olympics. Luke's gone to Rio, but Kieran and I have never been to one. Kieran's younger than I am. You know, he wants to make his first Olympic birth as do I. So um, we all understand that we, what we got to do. Um, but we all also like, I don't think are like resenting one another. Like we all want uh, the individual to come out on top. I want to beat those guys, but um, I also respect them a lot and what they're doing. So, uh, you know, I've been in touch with Kieran throughout this process, you know, congratulating him his races, asking him what he's doing. He's been asking what we've been doing. Um, Cause at the end of the day, like none of us want to make it from like, a technicality you know what I mean like if it was up to us I think it'd be great for all of us to be in one place and just settle it on the day uh the circumstances like might not um necessarily um make that happen but uh yeah like we all want the the guy who deserves to go to go so um there's no resentment or anything like that at least from my end I guess I can't say for those guys (laughs) maybe the two of them have a group chat where they're talking smack about me but uh I don't think so you couldn't negotiate with Justin to be like, hey, man, just just go for the 15, open up another spot and like make this a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I wish. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would uh, I would love to have that conversation if Justin wasn't set up for, uh, you know, I, I think uh, so. He's going to be running in Diamond League coming up mm-hmm. in the five. And I I'm I, for one, am very excited to see how it goes because um, he's in incredible shape just being able to train with him and. Uh, understanding, you know, what it takes to be at that level just by being around him and training with him. Um, I think he's going to really be set up for a good breakout. And uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think his mind is on a medal in the 5k. So uh, yeah, I would love to have that conversation for my my own self-interest, but the Canadian distance running community might not have the same opinion. And I just want to cross off just one question that like the listeners might have about, because they think of you, you know, as the biggest race of your career thus far has been, you know, that NCAA title in the 10 K. So why wasn't the 10 K the option when you did run, you know, a 2749 personal best back in May, it just isn't enough though with the world ranking and missing the standard. Yeah. The biggest thing about that, like the, the biggest impact is why the 10k is such a challenge right now is because the the field size for the olympics uh has been slashed so to very small so only 27 guys go now so um in theory you could get in on the rankings uh in the 10k and if that were the case um i might be able to put myself in a position to uh get in off a ranking uh because i haven't run the standard of 27 28 but in reality uh, because there's only 27 spots, uh, 27 athletes have already run the standard. So it puts people like me in a position that uh, if you don't have the standard, you can't rely on the rankings. Um, so I knew California was my one shot and uh, the timing wasn't right. Unfortunately, like I, I, I really don't think I'm as far off as that race showed. Um, but 
I just wasn't ready to go after a time like that. Um, I, I tried, I went through in 1350 and tried to stay with that lead group and it just wasn't in the cards. Um, but the 10 K that's kind of just how that's the status of the event now is you get one opportunity, two opportunities. And, um, yeah, for me, like anyone that's followed my career, my best 10 K moments are all championship races. I've never really shown anything absolutely remarkable in these Peyton Jordans or Stanford invites where guys just go and crank, you know, 2720 out. Um, so that's pretty hard for me. So to chase that standard 2728 was a pretty tall ask. And, uh, once I didn't hit it in California, I was like, all right, that's it. We're putting that to rest. Um, and, uh, it was actually even a pretty, pretty big discussion whether I was going to go for that because Mount Sac was the same week, uh, with a, you know, treasure chest of, of ranking points. And I actually passed out that opportunity because I was like, if I do run 27, 27, there's not five guys challenging for the 10 K spot. Like I'll virtually be on the Olympic team the moment I cross the line. Um, so I had to take a shot because otherwise I would have had a couple sleepless nights of just like rolling over like, Oh man, could I have went with Joe Klecker? And uh, I got my answer, which is no, <laughs> but uh, it would have been a lot harder uh, not trying, you know? So I went for it. Uh, the 5k provides a bit more opportunity given in the field size is 42 athletes instead of 27. So our friend Ben Weingart, the photographer, past guest on uh, this podcast, put together a little uh, photo zine called Don't Count Me Out. Uh, he spent some time with the Charlottesville, uh, down in Charlottesville with you guys. Uh, and so you recently posted the photo right after the race in uh, Massachusetts. So what does that mantra mean to you, I guess, with this whole entire, I guess, process looming? Yeah, it's pretty cool because um, that's something – Ben came up with, right? Um, you know, so to give some context, uh, I got really motivated this last summer during the pandemic to, um, I don't know, I, I really started to be like, I think we've got such great athletes here, we've got such person great personalities. Um, I think it'd be so cool to capture it and, you know, maybe do some more, um, you know, social media activations and, uh, I don't know. So we did one thing, we set up, we had that time trial and I really worked to, you know, find a nonprofit in the area and get donations and donate to the nonprofit, um, highlight the race. We got some, somebody take the footage and it took a lot of energy and uh, effort. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is a lot of work. So during that time, um, I was, I, you know, I follow Ben, I've known Ben for a while and he was actually an intern at Reebok, um, and just finished that up. So I just, you know, this is where the world is right now. The, the power of the DMS, uh, <laughs> I just sent him a DM over Instagram and was like, Hey Ben, man, like, I've been really interested in this. Um, I'm not very good at it and it takes a lot of work. Um, would you ever be interested in coming and doing some content for our team? And he was really interested and we were able to loop in Reebok and find an opportunity for him to come to town and do some more formal stuff, but also do some more casual work uh, for his own project. So it was great having Ben in town. Um, him and I had some you know, more deep discussions of like who we are, what we're trying to do, our representations. And um, it's pretty cool because he came out with this, don't count me out theme, um, which was all on him, but it, it, it epitomizes our group very well. And, um, you know, while he was in the middle of this process, Marty Heher and Colin Benny, um, two guys that you could argue have been counted out, um, really most of their careers for how exceptional they are, uh, go and run two of the fastest American, uh, marathons in, of all time. Um, and I think it just provided so much validation to Ben's work of like, wow, these guys, these guys have it. And, um, 
no one sees it until those performances happen, but I want to capture it with all these athletes and the timing couldn't be better because there's a guy like me in there. That's, you know, really trying to, uh, I guess, uh, come back to the surface of, of this platform and showing people like, I still got it. Uh, we got Josette Norris, who's a super like underdog story. That's really showing that she's got what it takes to an Olympic team. Amy Eloise, who's been so consistent throughout her whole career, but, um, has often got overlooked as well by some superstars. And then we've got Justin who doesn't fit that criteria at all, but uh, <laughs> you know, is, is legit a challenger for the, like you can make the argument that Justin is kind of a, a scale above where, you know, people think of him as a North American superstar, but he's got his shot to, to really medal at the Olympics. So, uh, and then along with Paige Stoner, Rob Demanic, uh, we've got just Alex Rogers, Graham Crawford now, like the whole group fits that criteria well. Um, and I'd like to emphasize that I think it resonates with other athletes in a similar position to us. There's so many athletes out there that they're, they're so close. They're, everyone's scraping the surface, and it's just like waiting for that opportunity. So, um, yeah, Ben did great work with it. I highly recommend people check it out. Uh, everyone's got little quotes and monologues uh, about the don't count me out. Uh, mentality he must have caught me on a bit of a feisty day because i think i got some swear words in mind but uh yeah it was uh it was pretty awesome and it's always a fun time seeing ben um you know at any meet so uh he's an amazing uh, artist and uh creative so it's pretty cool yeah I'll, I'll include the link to that project in the show notes for people to check it out now i recently had mason Furlick on the podcast and he's been on a tear this season uh he's it was a longtime training partner of yours so does any of this come as a surprise to you or what's impressed you the most about the season that mason's been able to put together yeah um i mean it's been a matter of time um mason is a stud of an athlete um people got to see that um you know from a I guess from a, a macro scale when he won NCAAs leading from the front, you know, he ran 821 later that summer and came fifth at the Olympic trials. Like he was, his last year of college was exceptional. And uh, for us, we got to see the inside of what he was doing every day, a smashing workouts, occasionally running with Nick Willis, um, you know, opening up his season in an 820 or 831 at some random like me at Duke, like he's truly remarkable. And, um, you know, I've gotten so much out of my experience with Mason. I actually ended up living with him for my last year of college and his uh, first or second year as a pro. And um, he's a really smart guy and he's really rational. Um, so he's really fun to talk to because, um, you know, he challenges, he challenged me a lot because I was, uh, I was kind of like, a, a, I don't know, overachiever type of like, I want to run a hundred miles. Like I wanted to overwork myself as a matter of getting good. And Mason really challenged me to like, just dedicate your energy to things that you're actually going to get a return on and just like chill the F out, man. Like he just really got me to like understand what's a productive training style. Um, and then outside that, um, a big thing that he helped me understand is that like to be a great runner at any specific event, um, it helps to be a great runner at all of them, to be a versatile athlete, the best athletes in the world. Um, yeah, sure. They might be a specialized, like a specialist in one event, but they can do everything else. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to show that right now. I'm a 10 K guy trying to make the Olympic team in a five K. Um, so yeah, so long story short, this isn't about me. It's about Mason, <laughs> but, uh, to see Mason, you know, just really benefit from his own, um, philosophies. And I think for him, like he, he had a lot of minor setbacks throughout the first couple of years of pro just random injuries. I know he had a tough time, like finding training partners for a little while there. 
Um, so to now see him with a group that he can really utilize and work with on a daily basis, I think is helpful. Uh, but over the summer, he actually came and visited Charlottesville a couple times and trained with us. And uh, the last time he was there, he just had this like confidence and trust in his process. Like when the pandemic came, he just like took a month off and like stopped running. And we're all like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, this is what I feel like I got to do. And came back stronger and then just built throughout that. And um, Austin was kind of the coming out party where I was like, oh, wow, this guy really figured out what works well for him. And uh, yeah, he's kind of just practicing what he preaches. Like he, you, you talked about his details, I'm sure in, in the podcast, I listened to it. Um, you know, he, he doesn't do a ton of doubles. He doesn't do a ton of high mileage. If, if there's something he doesn't think he's going to benefit from, he doesn't necessarily go to his way to do it, um, especially during peak racing. So um, what I know is he's more confident than ever right now, as I'm sure you saw on the pod. Uh, and when he's in that state of mind, he's a pretty dangerous athlete to line up against. So, um, we talk all the time. I talked to him on the phone and, uh, yeah, we kind of just like spit game about running ideologies and, uh, it's pretty cool. He's, he's doing amazing. Yeah. It struck me at one point when he said like, when I make the Olympic team and not like if I make the Olympic team. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, that's, that, that's some good confidence. And you brought up how, you know, it, it is a good tool to have to be versatile and be able to do, you know, he just ran a three thirty five for the 1500. You've been dipping down to the 1500 as well a couple times this season. So is that, is that, you know, kind of a thing that goes back to, you know, the Sully days or, or is this also part of, you know, coach Fox's philosophy as well to get you, you know, down some of that sharpen that speed in the, in the, in the shorter events so that maybe it benefits you in the 5k. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was a direct philosophy of Sully's and, uh, I'd have to talk to him about it nowadays to see if it's something he applies with athletes now, but mine and Sully's relationship. It's just something we experimented with and got a lot of success out of. Um, you know, I did a lot of miler workouts, um, my last season, uh, training for NCAA 10 K and it was something that made me a better 10 K athlete. So we kept rolling with it. Um, with Fox, it's definitely lines up with his philosophy. Um, that being said, Fox, Fox's training is set up to make you a versatile athlete, but we don't do a ton of like miler work. Um, so as you can see with Justin playing around with the five or the 1500 all year running 333 himself, he's shown that like, Hey, I'm a 5k guy and I can, you know, I can beat some of the best 1500 meter runners in the world and run some of the fastest times. Um, but Fox also, he's pretty good at allowing athletes to um, kind of be in control of their own path. So if he feels like, the athlete really wants to do something and it's important for them to try out different distances. He's going to just be like, Hey, I'm going to try to set you up to do well in it. And if you think it's going to make you better then yeah, I'm all for it. So, uh, yeah, I've definitely learned more about it. I mean, this over the last eight months, I've run a 1500 and a half marathon and, uh, the half marathon was a debut. So I guess it's a PR, but, uh, the 1500 is a PR too. So, um, I'm definitely learning that like there's some training you can do out there where, um, you know, you can really apply it to a lot of distances and, you know, yeah, you might need to sharpen up for like peak performances, but you should be, you know, able to compete at least at some level. And a lot of them, if uh, you have a training approach that I guess uh, is dedicated to that. couple more questions before I let you go. So this Hobbs Kessler kid, did you get any wind of him while you were in Ann Arbor? Not when I was in Ann Arbor, he was probably like 12. <laughs> yeah. He was but, just uh, born. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, the the my whatever closest affiliation is mason and willis yeah the thing that i think is so cool about the very nice track club is it's always existed um you know and for those who don't know why it's called that um ronnie his staple 
quote is very nice during workouts. He always says very nice, screams at it from across the track. And uh, the very nice track club has been around for years, you know, mostly Willis being the leader of it and people who wanted to train with Olympic medalists came and go. We, we had some New Zealand Olympians come town and train. Will Lear was there for a little bit. So there's been a ton of people circulating around Ronnie. Um, so it's been cool to see the very nice track club now, you know, kind of make it into the mainstream uh, selling t-shirts, main like Instagram uh, realm. But uh, so I follow Mason Willis all the time. And uh, if, you, if you dig back, Mason and Willis were talking up Hobbs quite a bit in the middle of the pandemic because mm-hmm. there was no state champ championships and he was coming to the track. And I guess he paced Mason and Willis through a lot of impressive time trials, but then they paced him through, I think like an eight fifty two mile or something. Yeah. Something that was really impressive for like a low key high schooler, just going to fairy field and doing it. So I remember that and being like, dang, this kid's pretty good. A junior running eight fifty like time trial. And then uh, naturally as things got closer and, uh, they started talking about more and more. I was like, wow, this guy's like, I understood the workouts because I did them. The Michigan, I, you know, Hobbs would have smashed me at any moment in my college career in the Michigan based on the stuff that he was doing. And uh, I was following the workouts, the hills that like I've run before. Like it was just strictly through experience. I understood the the magnitude of the times he was putting up. And then uh, to see him run 357 indoors uh, was like, wow, okay, this kid's legit. And then obviously – um, more recently, 334 is just like, now it's now what's the challenge for me is understanding the age of Hobbs. Like I've been, I have this mindset of like, oh, he's just an exceptional athlete uh, that's doing everything right. Forgetting the fact that he's also 18 years old. So, uh, but above that, you know, watching some of the, the uh, productions that uh, Luke Warhurst has been putting on Ron's son uh, has been pretty fun to follow. And it looks like Hobbs is having a good time, which uh, to me is, is awesome to see as a high school kid at such a high level. Um, because I, I met him for the first time at Austin when you were there as well. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with them and I was like, wow. Yeah. You talk to the kid and you realize like, he's a high school, right? like, yeah. yeah, he's a high schooler. And you know, first thing he says to me, is like, yeah, don't, don't let Mason beat you or whatever. I'm like, yeah, all right. Sounds <laughs> good. I was like, and I was like, wow, it's like cool to meet him and be like, wow, you are so young and have so mm-hmm. much more like to your career. So, uh, yeah, I'm stoked to follow along. It seems like, uh, at the end of the day, those guys just have a group on a dynamic that fits everyone. And um, I think it's pretty cool to follow. Yeah. No, especially he was the guest right before you on the on this podcast. And that was the one thing that really struck me. It was just like you really get that innocence of his as like a yeah. as a high schooler. And the fact that he's having fun is the most important thing, more than, you know, whatever people think his potential can be and like if he's working out hard enough or not or or too hard and that kind of stuff. So um yeah. So I also want to get your your best Nick Willis story from your time in Ann Arbor. I know you maybe didn't work out as much together, but you must have had some sort of interactions or witnessed, you know, really imp- impressive workout. I'm about to spend some days with him in uh, Eugene, so I want I want a good story to bring up. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, I'm trying to think of anything specific. Um, so, I mean, we all looked up to Willis. He lived in Ann Arbor. He would, he, what he would do often is he would just, if we were running by his house at the right time, he would just join us on a run. So it was so funny as a freshman or sophomore college kid who, you know, I was a track nerd. I, I looked up to Nick Willis and everything he's done. To have an Olympic medalist just come up to you and be like, hey, can I run with you? It was just like, uh, yeah, <laughs> please do. So, and, you know, you pick his brain about just random stuff and kind of just like, talk shop like it was awesome he was so friendly 
and he'd always come out to the Michigan when we did it and watch and, you know, cheer us on the last reps, which was pretty cool. Um, so what I heard, like sometimes Nick, like, I guess had some, uh, some more unorthodox like practices to his training. Um, and, uh, you know, he's so talented. So, uh, like it was kind of funny that some of the stuff he did, like, I, I don't know if he actually did this, but what I heard is like during the winter time, uh, Willis would run like 50 minutes or eight miles in, in the parking garage to avoid like slipping on ice. So I have no evidence of that being true. So I'm putting it on record now. So I'm curious what Willis's take is because as a college kid, uh, I remember someone telling me, because all our Mindy guys, they all went to the parking garage and started running in there because Nick Willis did it. So uh, that's probably the funniest thing that I uh, heard. Yeah, about we'll have to get the there. truth and we'll, we'll, we'll confirm it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it was always awesome. And then the last thing I'll say is, uh, again, back to the very nice track club. Uh, after I was my first time being All-American uh, in cross country, my last run I did was with Nick Willis. And he told me, you know, his first time being All-American and he said that Ronnie told us, told him to run three minute K's the whole race. So we did that and started in like 160th and finished like 18th because he just ran wow. 30, 30 minutes. But, uh, I talked to Mason and him were my last two guys I talked with. I went and got my first uh, 20th place finish and I came back to my car and I had a little note that just said very nice on it. And I've, I've kept it. It's somewhere back in my place in Charlottesville. I don't know if that was Willis or Ronnie, but it was pretty cool. Like a uh, token to get from that experience. That's really cool. Um, all right, one more on your current teammates. Marty was a guest on this podcast a couple months back, right after his uh, marathon performance, uh, and he, you know, I asked him to go through his entire day and like what that looks like with school. And now he's he's a doctor, so he made the move to to Charlottesville fairly recently. So I'm not sure how much you've overlapped with him in training down there, but does he ever make you feel like you haven't really accomplished anything just oh, because well, of how yeah. busy that man is? A hundred percent. A hundred percent does. Uh, Marty is so inspirational to be around. Um, not because of what he does on a daily basis. Well, not just because of that, because that's obviously very inspirational and the takeaway most people get, but being around him and seeing his mindset about it is what is really inspirational to me because to him, it's really not that big of a deal. And it's mm -hmm. not like a characteristic that's like, oh, I mean, I'm sure it is like something that he has and others don't. But it's like to him, it's just like he makes it sound so manageable. He's like, yeah, I mean, I run in the morning. Yeah, sure. Like I, he, the biggest quality I think he seems to think that helps him is he does great off about like seven hours of sleep. He's fine, which I am not at right now, at least maybe when I'm a dad. But um so you talk to him and he's like, yeah, I just get up, like a run, like I'll just not waste any time, like just shower quick, make breakfast, go and study for six hours, come back, got time to cook, enjoy it, like play with my kids, run again, and then study and then go to bed. And you're like, okay. And then you That was not 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're like, okay, that, that, that doesn't sound that bad. And then when he's there, like it's even just watching him do it. It's not like he's like, you know, puffing his chest out, like, oh yeah, I only got three hours of sleep last night, like was out here grinding, or he's like, you know, saying like, oh, I'm too busy to do this. Like if we invite him to do something, he'd come do it. And like, he, he would take times where he'd come into Charlottesville and do intense training blocks. And those were times where, you know, I, they probably aligned with him not having so much school and stuff. So he wasn't on the grind, but even watching him study and stuff like that, like he just is focused when he's doing something. Like when it's time to do a certain task, he does it. So it's like, if he's something that's on his schedule, he just doesn't waste time at all, which is easier said than done. Um, 
and then he's just clutch. Like even when he's working out, like he he does a good job working out, but he doesn't necessarily do things that reflect what he's capable of in races. So he has like such um, like unconditional trust in Fox in the training, so that even if his workouts, like even if he's getting you know dropped by Colin or like I'm putting the screws to him or something like that, like when it comes to race day, he's like just a whole another athlete because um, he knows he's ready. Uh, he trusts everything. And uh, so it's pretty cool. Um, it's, it's always fun having Marty in town. And uh, you know, the other thing that I love is like, he's so down to earth, like, you know, before bed every night, he'll make like the most gigantic bowl of ice cream like I've ever seen in my life and have that <laughs> probably every night. And it's just like, you know, it's his mind. Like he's training for one of the biggest, like events in, of his life. And as an athlete, it's like thinking, you know, Oh yeah, I'm going to like, be as rigid as possible he's like yo dude i love having ice cream every night like i love this way too much to not do it and you're like dude that's awesome like it mm-hmm. just is it's so re- refreshing to see someone that's just really enjoying the process and uh he wouldn't do it if he didn't love it like i think the routine he has he really enjoys um and i really don't know if he would like he was at naz before and i think he tried the whole like pro runner lifestyle and i think it just right all right, we've done the final questions with you in the past, but I'll close with this because uh, last time, or in 2018, right after the race, your big question is, uh, where's my mom? So how, just t- tell the listeners and give us a little update. How's your mother doing? She's great. It's, that's, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that because she literally just retired uh, like four days ago. Wow, congrats to her. Yeah, she's been a, a nurse practitioner in the emergency room for – over 30 years and uh it sounds like her whole hospital was um very sad to see her go but um very excited for her to be done so she retired i think uh my dad just recently bought her some new golf clubs so uh she's just testing out the retirement game and uh at the same time my sister just had a baby uh so she's a new grandma so ton of updates for mom you couldn't have asked at a better time so she's retired grandma taking care of reese my uh niece and uh just loving life so things are good yeah my good friend ryan is like a is, is big into golf and a huge fan of uh yours he would kill me if i didn't ask like what's how how good is your golf game and what's your handicap well so the only reason i'm like golf at any point in my life is because i played hockey so mm-hmm. it's natural you're done with the hockey season you play golf um, I had a terrible temper when I was young. So I was like, uh, like, like chuck the club, like down the fairway type of guy. So I don't know if your buddy Ryan would have wanted to play with me, but, uh, <laughs> I played a lot from grade seven to grade nine, pretty much until I became like really into running. And then I, my dad bought me a membership and I went like twice and that was the end of my golf career. But my like claim to fame is that I shot like 90, like a couple okay. times. Like I always wanted to break. 90. Um, my girlfriend, Hannah actually played golf at Michigan. Right. So right. She like goes and plays with my family when we're in town and, uh, just puts everyone in the ground, which is pretty cool. Um, and she knows well enough that like my 90 that I shot was probably like 105. But, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, when I played, like I could, you know, I could, I could probably shoot a low a hundred if I played now. Um, I can't say for sure, but what about your buddy Ryan? Does he play pretty good? Uh, yeah, he, he hits it well every now and then, uh, we just had his bachelor party not too long ago, but that you're not really playing for, for the score at that point. I think it's just yeah. a good day out on the course. <laughs> yeah. My family's super into it. Everyone loves it here. So, uh, Hannah's just kind of getting back in the game after being a retired student athlete. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'd like to go out again, but, uh, 
yeah, it's, I get tired golfing. So like, yeah. it doesn't mess with my running very well. We'll get you out to, to one of the courses out here, uh, in New York. Um, all right, Ben, well, hang in there. You've got only a couple more days of quarantine left and then, uh, wishing you the best of luck at the Canadian trials. When, uh, when is your race and like, when can people watch it? Yeah. Um, the race is on June 26th at eight o'clock PM Montreal time. Okay. I actually don't know what time zone Montreal is in. I haven't been there in a long time. Um, but, uh, it should be streamed as far as I know, um, on athleticscanada.tv, which I think is through runner space. So, mm-hmm. um, I'll be posting all about it on my social media. So leading up to the race, if you check out my Instagram page, um, I like to give, uh, my followers a good idea of, uh, how to tune into races. So that'll be my opportunity to impress the selection committee. And if all goes well, um, hoping to represent uh, Team Canada in Tokyo. So I'm pretty excited. Get it done. Thanks, Chris. But uh, yeah, always good to be on here. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Always good to catch up with Ben. I'll include the information on how to watch his race at the Canadian Trials in the show notes, as well as the link to Ben Weingart's Don't Count Me Out project. A few last housekeeping things. Subscribe to the City of Smag newsletter to get all of your running news in your inbox from me. I try and drop my knowledge with you weekly on all the best results, performances, and events that take place. This week, I examined why the conversation around Stefan Hassan's world record, which lasted only 54 hours before it was broken by Letsenebet Gide at the Ethiopian Trials in 2901. It's crazy. Why all of that feels a little bit different than when there was some skepticism around Alma's Ayana when she did it at the 2016 Olympics. Plus, what track commentary could maybe learn from Formula One on discussing athletes competing in competitor spikes? I thought it's been fascinating to see some big performances when the logo doesn't match up on the kicks as well as the kit. So if you read the newsletter, you also know that starting next week, this podcast will become the feed for Trials Talk with Chris and Kyle, presented by Tracksmith. Every day of the Olympic trials, we're bringing you a daily show recapping all the biggest performances and shocks from the U.S. Olympic trials in Eugene, and I'm super pumped for it. If you're digging all the content and want to show your support for Sidious, then hit us with a couple bucks and pledge your support over at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash SidiousMag. You're donations help us get to events covers hosting fees and lets us plan to do bigger things in the future so thanks to whoop for coming on as a title sponsor of the podcast head on over to whoop.com and enter code sidious at checkout to save 15 percent off sleep better recover faster run faster get to that next starting line healthy because races are coming back with whoop that's all i've got i've been your host chris chavez wishing you some happy and healthy running legs are feeling good